You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So a few weeks ago, after posting one of the podcasts, I received a LinkedIn message from an individual whom I did not know and who's asking a simple question. And the question was, have you ever had a real union person on your show? And real being in all caps. And not knowing the individual and not bothering to check the individual's profile, I just simply responded with, thanks for reaching out. I have invites out to a couple of union side writers, which I do. And I would love to interview Sean O'Brien. Would you happen to know anyone with an in? And also, do you have any recommendations? And then after I sent that back, I went to the individual's profile. And Dan McCrory is a TV writer, a screenwriter, and an author. And he is also a former union president, as well as a current member of the Writers Union. And Dan wrote a book a few years ago called Capitalism Killed the Middle Class. And so I I responded to Dan that I would love to have him on the show, but I wanted to read his book first. So I ordered Capitalism Killed the Middle Class, and knowing that we probably had differing views, it wasn't until after I started reading the book that I realized we both came out of the same company, national company, uh, AT&T, if you will, um, as well as belong to the same union, different locals, different states, etc. But we started engaging in a very pleasant conversation back and forth because reading his book brought back a lot of memories for me. In any case, uh, I, I wanted to complete the book before having him on. I finally was able to do so over the weekend. And yesterday we were able to record uh, a conversation. And it was a pleasant conversation because I think you know, having guests on, you should treat them as guests, although we differ on some of our opinions, uh, probably widely so. In any case, here's Dan McCrory. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Dan McCrory, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. You're on the, the West Coast, so it's much earlier out there. Yep. Luckily, you are my coffee. So, um, we've had a lot of discussions kind of offline and I thought it would be, um, I'll do a, a brief intro before this airs, but why don't you give the listeners your background a little bit and kind of how you contacted me? Cause I thought that was humorous. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember how I contacted you. It seems like we've known each other forever now. Right. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, I lived, um, a very poor existence uh, growing up and, and um, I, when I got the chance to move to Denver and live with my grandmother and go to high school in Denver, I got to see what the middle class was really about. And I decided I really liked being that comfortable. So um, when I graduated from high school, uh, I didn't have any prospects for college. So I, uh, my grandmother said, go apply at the phone company. So I went and applied at the phone company. And uh, I worked there for 37 years. And during that time, I decided I wanted more of a, um, a stake in my own destiny. So I got involved with the union and um, they kept pushing me up and pushing me up. And I ended up being local president 
for a one term and uh, I ran for office a couple of times, political office. And um, I uh, found that um, there's a lot of things out there that need need to be changed. So that's what I'm working on now. So, um, yeah, you originally contacted me through LinkedIn and it was, do you ever have union people on your podcast? It was All essentially right. the question. So, yeah. and you know, I've got invites out to a few um, and there's a few that I'd love to interview, haven't had a chance to, but when I looked at your background, so um, for listeners, you're, you're a former CWA president. You work for the telephone company, both of which are my alma mater. Um, and then you are now a UAW member, correct? Actually, uh, the National Writer Union left the UAW oh, okay. uh, a year ago. And right. that was because uh, we, had a, um, we had a difference of opinions about... Uh, or where we should go next to, uh, to get uh, or to organize and get new members. And uh, so now we're um, being serviced, I guess you could call it, by the Teamsters. Oh, interesting. Okay. Are they affiliated? The Writers' no, Union? They said if we get, if we double our membership, they would invite us to affiliate. But um, I think we're probably going to end up with CWA to tell you the truth. Okay. Yeah, because they've got the Newspapers Guild, et cetera. Exactly. So, um, so you wrote a book and I, I looked at the publication date is 2019. Um, it's capitalism killed the middle class. And I wanted to read it before I had you on and, and I got mostly through it. I, I kind of skipped through it a little bit just because I knew we were going to have the conversation today. Um, and as I was mentioning before I hit the record button, I think, um, two things about it that I think. First of all, if if you'd stayed with the crony capitalism, which you mentioned in the very beginning, 80% or more of what you kind of outlined in there, people on both the right or the left, um, obviously the left, but more on the right, would probably agree with you. The folks from Tea Party, MAGA movement, the dis- disenfranchised uh, middle America, so to speak, because there is a rigged system, and you hit that a lot. It's a very good read. Thanks. And I'll tell you, it brought back a lot of memories when you were talking about the old Ma Bell and AT&T and, and uh, the quality of work-life programs and all that. I was just like, wow, flashbacks. Yeah. But, um, but it was, uh, there's a few things in there that I obviously would disagree with, but your the premise for writing it almost was a prelude to the book you're working on now. Yeah, so we're, the new book's going to be called Rebuilding Union, and it's going to look at uh, all the all the out of the um, out of the box uh, thinking that's going on in the labor movement as far as uh, organizing uh, new groups of folks like the baristas at uh, Starbucks, and here in uh, California, uh, there is a um, a strip club that has asked for us to be represented by a union. So uh, that's going to come up on uh, November 7th, that vote. Right. That's, um, uh, I want to say Garden Star or something like that in North Hollywood. Uh, yes. Yeah. I've been posting a little bit about that here and there. Um, 
So what do you see going on right now? That would be maybe a good place to start because we're it's we're coming out post-pandemic. Um, there's been a huge upsurge in organizing activity. And I've been having this conversation a little bit. What do you what do you attribute that to? Uh, I think a lot of people um, were frontline workers, let's say. Um, but the medical profession, they were sort of compensated very well for the, the time that they spent being on the front lines. Whereas if you went to get a latte before you went into work as a nurse, uh, the person that's serving you that latte was not going to do compensation for the risks that they were taking. So um, I think a lot of people became disenamored with that whole process and, and decided that if I'm going to be out there risking my health or risking my you know death practically in a lot of cases, then I should be duly compensated for that. So I think there's been sort of a, a reset button. Uh, a lot of different things have been affected by this COVID. I mean, um, at the phone company, they said, oh, your job could never be uh, remote, remotely done. All of a sudden, that's what they want you to do. Stay at home and do your job from there. So a lot of things, we're looking at a whole new world out there now. Do you think it's starting to normalize? God, I hope so, because um, I wrote an article for a, a website and I talked about uh, COVID burnout in the healthcare industry. Uh, they were doing things like not answering call buttons and things like that because they were so overwhelmed. And uh, one of the things that I quoted in that article is from an insurance company that said two to three years from then, which is right about now, there would be a major mental health crisis. I think that uh, people have forgotten how to socialize, and we're seeing a lot of people that were not prepared for a lockdown of young men, especially. Yeah, well, you know, the healthcare industry, um, and I work in and out of the healthcare industry, the healthcare industry for years has been short-staffed. Yes. And they, um, and this, you know, in part, I think due to the fact that the nursing schools just can't keep up with the attrition. Um, but the pandemic really exacerbated. <clears throat> and so you've had, you know, nurses across the country yeah. have just either left the system entirely or they started doing travel, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I, I look at the articles with the new, uh, the nurses unions that are, you know, they're pushing, well, we need more staff, so therefore you should pay more, but yet pay is not really the issue because a lot of healthcare institutions are paying quite a bit um, and they just can't get the staff in. It's, it, it's more of a, a system problem across the country. You know, we need to graduate more nurses or, you know, somehow we, it's it's been broken before the pandemic. Now it's just really shattered. Yeah, the healthcare industry in general needs to to uh, be revamped because um, uh, we don't know one one hospital you'll go to and get the aspirin for fifty cents and go somewhere else and five dollars and and there seems to be no um, common uh, numbers that we can look at and say well that's for that and that's outrageous and and I think we need to get where we can look at uh, and uh, certain, certain medicines and things like that ought to be looked at and, and fixed. Well, so that kind of gets us probably to our, our philosophical differences. And when you say fixed, who's going to fix it? 
Um, society in general, um, like I said, we need to look at things like um, for there's certain industries. Let's say you uh, want to get a massage. If you go into a massage parlor, they'll have a rate card that tells you how much for different kinds of massages. Uh, we don't have those kind of uh, um, um, reporting issues when it comes to healthcare, and uh, we're seeing even in my book I talk about how there's a disparity between the, what the, uh, the haves and the have-nots get as far as medical treatment, and uh, sometimes it's really insidious. You don't see that uh, that you're um, being uh, paying more for certain things because, like I said, there is no standards out there. And uh, I think that um, the uh, society, uh, uh, nurses and doctors, and the medical care themselves should all get together and, and figure out a way out of this uh, this morass that we've been in for years and years and years. I mean, they tried to fix it back in the Clinton era, uh, and uh, right. um, the Republicans would have none of it. And uh, even now they're attacking Obamacare when it's the only thing out there that saving a lot of people and um, it's not not the perfect uh, system definitely not the perfect system I, I a single payer type system and I think that's the way we are eventually going to go I, I think that uh, I, I like the idea of socialized medicine and I think that a lot of people have made a big deal about some of the bumps in the road but I, I think uh, for um, in general purposes, uh, that system would really work well. It seems to have done well for Canada and uh, England. Well, it's it's interesting because um, although I don't post on Labor Union News the uh, stuff from either Canada or England, there is a huge um, healthcare battle going on over in England right now with a lot of strikes, um, NHS strikes, I believe, and you know, and that may be part of the problem is when you nationalize an entire industry and they decide whoever decides that it's not working right. And then the whole industry kind of shuts down and they cancel procedures and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's, we could probably debate nationalized or socialized medicine quite a bit or any other industry. Um, it's, you know, I, my, uh, thinking, and I'm, I lean more libertarian with a small L but I think um, part of the problem is there's been too much government intrusion into the into the, either the healthcare field or just the marketplace in general. Um, whereas if you're stymieing competition, it's going to be prices will naturally go up. And and with regulations, there's certainly been a lot of stymieing of regu- of, um, of competition. It's not necessarily a free market now, nor has it been. But, you know, and I, you know, I discovered this when I moved to the East Coast and I was working with a company with employees in both uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut. And there was a bigger pool of employees in Connecticut, smaller pool in Rhode Island. And the employees in Rhode Island were complaining that their premiums were higher than those in Connecticut. So I went back to the employer and said, what's the problem here? Why are there, why are they paying so much? And the response was, I can't pull the employees across state lines. In my own case in New Jersey, when I lived there, you know, there's only three companies that you could shop for health insurance with. They, they had to offer basically the same three plans. 
and their prices only varied by maybe $50 a month, you know, depending on the plan. And it was across the companies. And what I discovered was, you know, and this was pre Obamacare, there was a monopoly in the market that was established by the government. And which goes to monopolies in general. And you and I both worked for a monopoly at one point. Actually, I started just, just after divestiture, but, um, yeah, it's, you can't have a monopoly, a true mar- market monopoly without the government sanctioning it. Yeah, like the post office. Correct. And yeah. They, they, at about the same time that MCR WorldCom uh, sued uh, AT&T to get into the long distance market. And uh, they ended up going up, uh, belly up. So they won, they won the battle, but lost the war. And um, I, th- I think that uh, we're seeing that in a lot of industries. And crony capitalism, you're right, is, is a way to talk about uh, what's going on in, in, uh, in just about every uh, uh, form of a, a workplace that you can think of. But uh, I, I think that uh, it's also crony capitalism has been uh, uh, encouraged in a lot of cases. Private prison movement—that—that's uh, uh, crony capitalism at, at its worst—and it's because of companies like, uh, uh, not companies, but organizations like Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that goes into a state or, or at the federal level and and uh, has a template for a law they want passed, and um, they um, get that passed and they move it on until it becomes federal law. And uh, that's them looking out for themselves and the label movement. And uh, I know that uh, it's got its problems, but I think that uh, um, ultimately uh, we, the people, um, are going to have to uh, sit down with our government representatives and say, this is the way it's going to be. And uh, I I wrote another piece about that that uh, talks about how we can uh, take back the conversation and, and stop making us all apologize for the banks and big business. So, I, and this is where I, I think a more fundamental conversation has to take place, whether it's you and I or just in general. What is the proper role and size of government? And, you know, oh, yeah. they, and traditionally, and I'm, I'm going to put this into partisan, maybe not partisan, but right-left type of, of uh, nomenclature, the left likes the idea of having big government take care of you womb to tomb, and I'm overgeneralizing here, right? And then the right wants smaller government, free enterprise. And right now we're a mixed economy. We've got, it's not necessarily free enterprise, but it's more free than certain other countries and less free than others, right? So, but that, and the role of labor in that which kind of gets into like your next book is what is the role of labor in that? Are they a government government entity, somewhat quasi private government entity, or do they operate more towards a free market? And there's, there's always been that push pull going back well over a hundred years. And I, and I, you know, I I alluded to you and when we were messaging back and forth, I think Gompers, um, yeah, if he were to see the way unions have evolved today, he'd probably be rolling over in his grave. Because he was, he was very, you know, free market. He didn't want the government instituting, you know, wage or benefit policies. He wanted he wanted the unions to fight for that. And this gets into 
if the government's doing this for workers, is there a role for unions? And what is it? Okay, well, two issues here. Samuel Gompers uh, did us a major disservice in 1894 by refusing to talk about starting a labor party. That was our first uh, shot at it. And there's been uh, three other major attempts in a sense, and that hasn't worked in there. So the other issue that you're bringing up was, what was that other issue? Just the, just the role of unions in general and government, uh, go. role of government. I had a meeting the other day with uh, a, uh, a billionaire, I guess he is, uh, from uh, Paris, and he's uh, done 37 turnarounds for different uh, companies. And, and he said that um, that the way they negotiate wages in France with unions is it's a triumvirate. It's uh, not only is it the employer and the, and the union, it's also the government saying, uh, well, this is what we can uh, afford to do. And, and the government's there playing their role to make sure that both sides are, are playing fairly. So I, I thought that was an interesting approach. And, and sometimes I think we get to that point, calling the NLRB to uh, when uh, negotiations have reached an impasse or when a company is uh, playing um, unfair when it comes to uh, an organizing drive uh, because they can take an employee and, and berate them in a, in a room one-on-one -on -one and scare the hell out of them and they won't uh, vote for the union then. And uh, so this... We've got a president now who believes in unions, and I think this is our, our time. This is our moment when, when we can um, make major changes in the way, uh, in the employer-employee relationship, and I'm really looking forward to uh, working that out. So let me, let me throw an example at you, and, um, and this has been my, one of my arguments for years. In New York currently, uh, they and this is New York City. They just passed a, what's called a just cause law, and I think it's a fair scheduling law, or I don't remember the name of that one, but it's basically a just cause law. And you and I both know just cause is the seven steps of just cause, right? Right. Um, so the the so in the fast food industry in New York City, in order to terminate an employee, um, the employee doesn't have union representation per se, although the unions fought to put that in, they, they can now go to the city council or some bureau within the city of New York and claim that they were fired unjustly. So as a former union person, I then asked the question, and this is where it gets more esoteric, if the government is taking care of things for me, why would I need a union? And that's... Wow. That's where, you know, Gomper said this famously in, in one of his letters, you know, he believes he believed in a minimum wage, but he did not want the government instituting a minimum wage because he didn't, he wanted the unions to get credit for it, right? Yeah, that's, that's the whole rise of the industrial workers of the world uh, came out of that conversation, I believe. And you're right, they they wanted to... Uh, have the union have to say so, but the, at the same time, they didn't want unions getting involved in politics. And I don't know how you can do one without the other. Well, if if you leave it to labor and management to work out their problems without the government involvement, you know, even before the National Labor Relations Act and and 
maybe before the Railway Labor Act, there was a lot of labor activity and companies were signing contracts, but it was left to the powers on the streets, so to speak, forgetting all the violence. I think there's still, you know, there should be regulations about violence. There already is. But is it, is it, should there be a role for the government to do all the things that unions used to do? If you, for example, go to nationalized medicine or socialized medicine, whatever you want to call it, then you've just removed another thing that unions can bargain for. Uh, yes, but it also opens up uh, unions to be able to bargain for something else that they weren't able to bargain for before. If you take that off the table, you're right. Uh, that's one less thing that unions have to worry about. I think um, government's there for it to provide oversight and uh, the actual negotiations happens between the company and the union and um, and they've had to step in for uh, for with injunctions and things like that and that's been government's role is to uh, act as an arbiter or, or referee whatever you want to call it and so I think labor plays a very important part we are the advocates we are the voice of the working person however if well and again that goes to the core question if if the government's doing that for the average person you know, discrimination on the job. Well, do I really need to go to a union or can I go to EEOC? Um, wrongful termination these days. You know, do I need to go to a union or can I go file a claim with the local public employees or you know, if it's public employees or some other agency? Can I sue in, in court over that? And I, I think that, um, and this, I, I did this part of my graduating paper in college, part of the decline of unions, and there's a lot, that can be attributed to it. But part of the decline also corresponds with the rise of government paternalism. The more government has taken over the role of unions, the less people have been in unions. And it's not, it's not an exact correlation, but there is some correlation or causation, maybe it would be the right term. Yeah, I, I don't... Um... I don't disagree with that. I think that uh, they have been able to step in and, and do a lot of things. But unfortunately, with the political system, the, the thing that you um, got passed, as we see with Roe versus Wade, the thing that you passed that you, you think is written in stone now, uh, all of a sudden, depending on the political tie, and get uh, taken out. Whereas with a contract, uh, that's renewed every two or three years, and you you make sure that uh, you keep what you got. From what I heard um, and from my own experience, um, when they go to uh, bargain a new contract, the uh, the company says, well, we're starting from ground zero. As far as we're concerned, nothing in this contract exists right now. And the union says, we're, we're going to take this contract and we're build on that. And so uh, Outlook of what we're doing in the room negotiating, um, there's going to be all sorts of problems and impasses and things like that. And that's when you bring in the government to uh, to act as a referee. Are you, are you talking about mediation or arbitration? Both, actually, because um, there have been cases of impasse in both cases. And, and uh, I think that uh, it's government's role is to make sure we're playing nice and that... Uh, where um, a lot of companies will drag their feet on that first contract, hoping that uh, people are going to get so fed up with how long it's taking that they're going to um, 
negotiate a decertification of the union before the union even has a chance to change the, the working conditions of that particular workplace. Uh, that sometimes happens. I, I think um, part of the first-time negotiations is you're really remaking your entire employment relationship, which, you know, even, you know, the first contracts that are reached, I think the average is 468 days, according to Bloomberg. Um, those are contracts. They got contracts without decertification, but it just, it takes a long time to do a first contract. The um, repeat negotiations, I think the average is, you know, four to six months or something like that, which is successor contracts. Well, I was telling you from personal experience, uh, we uh, had a, um, well, the, the mechanics that worked on the tr uh, trucks and vans for the, the phone company uh, were not organized. The first time we organized them, and the first time we went in for a contract, um, management was working behind the scenes with some of the employees who would have been scabs if we had ever gotten to uh, that point. And they were um, telling the, the employees that, uh, look, the union can't do anything for us. Uh, they can't even negotiate a contract. And, and so there was a desert and, and we had to walk away from the whole thing. And that was such a frustrating, disappointing time. And I, I see that happening in, in industries uh, across the board. So um, there's got to be a better way. And uh, we worked on the Employee Free Choice Act, but that didn't come to pass. Yeah. So the, well, and here's, so the Employee Free Choice Act and the big, um, and now we're, we also have it with the PRO Act, yeah. the big uh, the big banner under the Employee Free Choice Act that everybody campaigned about was the, you know, effectively the elimination of the secret ballot election, the card check. Um, and that was, that was the big battle back in the 07, 08 timeframe. The, to me, the more dangerous thing was the binding arbitration provision in EFCA, which is also in the PRO Act. And the reason for that, and I, I think, Dan, this is where um, like 80% of, of your book I agree with because that crony capitalism, and you're talking a lot of about, you know, the Fortune 500 or the big cor corporate conglomerates, et cetera. But where, where really... I think there needs to be less focus, and this is not necessarily towards you. This is just in general. When we're talking about big sweeping changes in federal law, and you're not considering that 60% of the employers out there are small businesses, and they they have greater numbers than the big Fortune 500, right? So these affect the mom and pop shops. And I use an example when I was talking about, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, the divisions of a bargaining unit under what was then known as specialty healthcare, where you could divide up a, a bargaining unit or an employer by department, so to speak. Yes. But if you're a mom and pop diner and you've got two cooks, two waitresses or waiters, waitstaff, and um, two dishwashers, you could effectively have three different unions. How long does mom and pop survive in that? If you're having to go to the negotiating table three different times, you may have a work stoppage with one, get contracts with the other, vice versa. Like that, that can devastate a small business. And I only use mom and pop diner as an example. And there so we, are unions that represent uh, two employees in a, in a, a workplace. Um, typically, unions find it to be cost effective only when it gets to 50 or more employees per uh, bargaining unit. 
Uh, and less than that, they don't bother with because, <clears throat> frankly, it's, it's too much work for one thing to, to bargain for two employees. So uh, what you'll see is that uh, the laws that are proposed always say 50 or more employees in the workplace. I haven't found that in the PRO Act. And, and that wasn't an EFCA either. Well, I'll need to do some investigation. But typically, um, unions will not go after a, a workplace that's less than 50 employees. Well, yeah, I think the average um, average unit size, I'd have to go back and look, but it's, it's around, it's smaller than that. The <clears throat> We're seeing that, um, God, probably over the last 20 years, the NLRB, you know, the smaller and smaller voting units just and with elections. Businesses also need to look at, excuse me for interrupting, mm-hmm. need to realize that they probably have more in common with a, a local uh, union president than they do with a CEO because we deal with budgets and a lot smaller than uh, AT&T's. And we uh, also have to, uh, we're involved in community service, all these things that small companies have to deal with, uh, a steward structure. Um, And I know, because I've been there, uh, that um, um, we have a lot in common with uh, with these smaller companies because, uh, for one thing, the money that uh, is involved in, running a union or running a, a, a small uh, company uh, are pretty comparable. And uh, I think if they these smaller companies realize that, then uh, we probably have more in common. Back in the, thir- I think it was the 30s in Minnesota, um, there was a, uh, a move to bring together unions and farmers, which to me is amazing that that ever happened but uh and they were socialists and they they actually worked together for the betterment of farmers and for for unions and, and uh i think if we can look at this from a grassroots point of, of view then uh you're right we can all say well that's crony capitalism we, we don't agree with that and we can work together well it didn't that emerge into the dfl democratic farm labor yes, party yes. or something like that yes yeah um, yeah, that, so uh, let me ask you this question. This is more generic on the political spectrum. You, I know you're further over. Would you call yourself? You reference Bernie Sanders several times in your book. Are you a democratic socialist? Um, if you got to give me a label, that, that one works just as well as any other. I'm definitely on the progressive side of the democratic party. So, and here's a, here's a puzzling question I've never been able to have answered is if we're talking about quote, democratic socialism. Uh um, And I think maybe one time one person tried to answer it on Twitter for me, but essentially the model you're it's private ownership, unless we vote to change it to public ownership, or is that, do you take away private property rights, private enterprise rights in no, an ideal are, world? There are so many different kinds of socialism. I uh, actually did a tech talk video on it. There's uh, about eight different kinds, including a libertarian type socialism, if you can believe that. Um, but um, no, I, I think uh, what we have now is democratic socialism because uh, you can socialism just means it's uh, for the benefit of society. So we've got the police department, the fire department, public schools, 
uh, Social Security, Medicare, all those are socialism in, um, in the way that they handle um, society. Uh, and then we've got the other side that uh, is uh, the Democratic side, and, and that's where the big split uh, of the Democratic Party. Progressives believe that we've got to stick to those ideals, and, and neoliberals or the moderate Democrats uh, think that, uh, like Republicans, that uh, if you don't win the election, it doesn't matter what you believe in, and so they're willing to compromise some of their principles in order to win an election. Well, socialism... The simplest, um, the simplest definition is essentially public ownership of the means of production, right? That's uh, yeah, that's one form of socialism. But then, so if you were to combine the two, which you know, democratic socialism is there private property ownership? Yes, there is. What I can do is read right from my book the definition I put in here. A democratic socialist is not a Marxist socialist or a communist. A democratic socialist is one who seeks to restrain the self-destructive excesses of capitalism and channel the government's use of our tax money into creating opportunities for everyone. Democratic socialists believe that both the economy and society should be run democratically to meet public needs, not to make profits for a few. A democratic socialist does not want to destroy private corporations, but does want to bring them under greater democratic control. The government could use regulations and tax incentives to encourage companies to act in the public interest and outlaw destructive activities such as exporting jobs to low-wage countries and polluting our environment. Most of all, socialists look to unions to make private business more accountable. Okay, so let me let me ask you this. I'm going to use the big boogeyman these days. Um, guy starts a little bookshop okay. in his garage, shooting out books via mail, um, sets up a website so that people can order books on his on his website, and that becomes rather successful, right? Uh-huh. And so then all of a sudden he grows into you know shipping out socks and underwear and furniture off his website gets really successful opens up warehouses around the country you know i'm talking about bezos right right at what point does the government say oh no you've gotten too big or nope we're not going to let you do that and if going into that process most people who are entrepreneurs they want to become successful not necessarily for the money just they have a really good idea and it starts to take off but at some point down the road the government's going to step in and, and, for lack of a better term, handcuff you. Does that not kill innovation? And because the majority decided to, right? You've become too successful as an individual, so the majority is going to decide to regulate you or to, you know, curtail your growth. That's a good point. And I think that in the case of uh, oligarchs or monopolies, whatever you want to call them, uh, that's been proven time and time again to stifle innovation. I mean, look at AT&T, the picture phone that we've come to know and love so well. It came out in the 1964 World's Fair. And how long was it before we actually implemented that? It, it was after the breakup, after divestiture, that uh, we were sort of forced into uh, doing more innovation and um, long distance which was the big uh, money maker back in the day, 
is no longer considered. I mean, I have a conversation every Wednesday with friends in Canada and Thailand at the same time. And uh, it doesn't cost me a cent. Right. So um, things change, and we just have to adapt to those changes. But again, and this goes back to the question a few minutes ago, Does it, should the government be doing that, or should free market principles allow that? And I'll, I'll come back to the crony part, because if we're using Bezos, for example, there was crony capitalism in there that, in that he got, you know, UPS, or not UPS, U.S. Uh, Postal Service, you know, mm-hmm. at cut rates, right? So should we should not be, in my opinion, should not be subsidizing that as taxpayers, um, you know, or through our stamps. But, you know, on the flip side to that, should the should a majority of people be able to limit the rights or the abilities or the capabilities of an individual? I think uh, that uh, when we leave um, businesses to regulate themselves, we're asking for trouble. It's the fox in the hen house uh, analogy. I think that um, government's role there is robust, and I do mean robust oversight. They need to make sure that uh, that the, we have a level playing field and that uh, people, people are playing by rules rather than uh, using uh, credit capitalism. I have a friend in Thailand, uh, he's an ex uh, Canadian expat lawyer, and he was a one uh, and uh, he used to uh, go into emerging democracies and he would uh, negotiate uh, right, mineral rights, water rights, things like that, at pennies on the dollar. And he said it got to the point where he couldn't sleep at night. And he, uh, when Myanmar started to emerge as a democracy, he went in and taught their lawyers how to protect the, those those valuable resources that they could never get back. And um, and then along comes this coup, and he's kicked out of the country. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. But he was trying to do the morally right thing for a change and and help them uh, hang on to those resources and get top dollar for those that they chose to share with the world or with the U.S. or other companies that were going in there to try to exploit as usual. Right. So along those lines, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you this kind of generally. So in the book, you talk about these, and you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the multinationals, the exporting of jobs overseas, et cetera factories, you know, that have moved out of country for cheaper labor. We certainly, you know, well, I don't know if you did, but I did through AT&T, you know, saw jobs go down to Mexico. That was pre-NAFTA, by the way. The, I guess the question, a couple questions with that, the United States itself was kind of formed on globalism. You know, we're, we're the colonies of Great Britain through the industrial revolution, even World War II, post-World War II, you know, the industrial might, we're shipping our products overseas, exporting. Should there be trade barriers? And if so, what kind? And should a an employer be prohibited from, you know, shipping jobs to China, for example, or Mexico or wherever? Well, I, I don't know if we can outlaw something like that. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the, uh worms are out of the can or whatever the expression is. Um, so I don't know that we can go back and do that. But I do know that um, 
uh, for instance, Mexico's uh, minimum wage is 50 cents an hour. How right. can we compete with that? And, and plus, they would turn the uh, they would they would ignore the fact that the environmental laws were in place in Mexico and, and just um, but unfortunately then the stuff started coming across the Rio Grande and getting into aquifers and, and things like that and so um, whether you call it an open border or not apparently uh, um, pollution uh, ignores any kind of borders so um, I think that um, what we can uh, do is, is um, have some uh, well, that's what NAFTA was supposed to do. It was supposed to uh, add a chapter 11, I guess, where you could dispute different things. For instance, um, Canada did not like the MTBE additive in our gasoline here in California and because uh, they said it's a cancer-causing agent, and they uh, said that we're not going to sell that gas here. They took um, the, uh, the oil companies took it to chapter 11, and Canada not only had to reverse that decision, but also apologize to the oil companies for, uh, for uh, outlawing their product. That's insane, if you ask me. And they got the MTBs in? Yep. That's an interesting dynamic. California is less regulated than Canada on N MTBs, right? Yeah, but everything else. <laughs> There's got to be rules in place on how you play this game. And if I want to understand, uh, the EU has handled it very well. And, and um, but I know when I was writing this book, I was told by a friend who's a, a big wig at a union in Geneva, Switzerland. He said, tell your people in the book that this is the way America's handling these issues. This is not the way we do this in Europe. But yet I was uh, carrying my book in the airport in uh, Italy and uh, Thailand and all these places and people would see the book and they'd say, we have the same problem here. So my third book in that series is called Killing, uh, Capitalism Kills, the Global Edition. And what it tries to do is uh, show, uh, I've taken uh, several countries, Canada, uh, Thailand, Morocco, uh, France, and say, um, uh, is there any, um, is there a correlation between the way that uh, these countries treat their working class to how they're doing on the global market? And I found some interesting stuff there that uh, will be in the in that third book. So I I think there's there has been, and this is since when I was in the union movement as well. There's always been this admiration for European style unions and and systems. And I I hate to say it, but we're not Europe. You know, we've we have European history obviously, but it's, I think there's got to be a model um, that is not necessarily European, that is unique to the United States, that perhaps may not have to be as um, acrimonious as labor management has been. However, it, I don't know that, you know, going into European style socialism or whatever branch it's called is necessarily the answer. Because, you know, our, our industrial might, our innovation, you know, for decades and decades, well over a century, has been predominantly on the free market. And a lot of the, the problems that we have today are not necessarily because of free market, because, but because of crony capitalism. 
Okay, and there's an, another thing that Andrew's enjoyed. Uh, are you aware of the Powell Memo? Yes, and and I had not heard of it. And I, I, when I read it in your book, it's interesting in that um, it could be published today and it'd be the same grievances, so to speak, that were back in 1971. Yep. I think it was 71. It'd well, be the I, same conversation. I, I, uh, I think I'm uh, pretty much an expert on that these days because I've, uh, I re, um, rewrote the whole thing verbatim for my book. And then I also have talked about it in over 40 podcasts with people like yourself. And uh, so I've gotten to know it very well. And what I did was I, uh, uh, I figured out that that's what's going to save the working class, what's going to save unions and American society, if you ask me. Because what I did was I gutted it. I turned the word uh, business into uh, the people and unions and things like that to show that um, if we have uh, speakers bureaus, if we look at uh, um, all the different uh, ways that uh, that business has reached out to the American public, 40 years from now, we can be talking about what working people want rather than what the banks want or what big business wants. And I think that, uh, like I said, that could save uh, American society as we know it because back in the day, we had good growth, we had great education, and that was because business were being taxed at a 94% rate. And uh, it wasn't until they started uh, under Reagan and people like that, started getting some of that back that uh, we saw this disparity and they're paying taxes. Um, the poor people can't afford it because they don't. So all this falls on our backs to uh, take care of infrastructure, uh, to take care of all the things that this country needs to operate on a, a, a reasonable, decent level to uh, for, for its citizenry. So uh, until you take some of that and put it back on the back of biz- big business, uh, you're going to have this uh, winding gap of the, uh, um, the uh, what's the word, the 99% versus the 1%, the haves and the have-nots. So... Income inequality. There we go. So what what I think the general debate on that is, should businesses be taxed at 90% or 50% or whatever? And then the next question to that is, okay, so what keeps them here in the United States? I'm not saying don't tax them more. I'm just like, you know, capital in general has a tendency to flow like a, a flowing river, so to speak. If you throw up a dam here, it's going to flow around it or it'll fill up and overflow. And so what, what is to prevent, and this, this was my issue with, with the employee free choice act. One of the big issues I have with pro act is, okay, if we're going to have the government mandating contracts, what's to stop the small mom and pop from closing and, or big business moving overseas, moving those jobs out. Mom and Pop have more of a threat from Walmart because Walmart I goes don't back disagree. into a, uh, yeah, I don't a small disagree town. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Right. But it's easier um, to unionize a mom and pop than it is to unionize a Walmart. And then if the government's going to impose a contract on mom and pop where it's harder for them to compete or they just flat out say, I don't want to do this, you know, or if you use a manufacturing company that has the ability to manufacture here and chooses to manufacture here, 
or overseas and the government says, well, here's what you're going to have to pay. Here's what you're going to have to do. Here's your new work rules. Not to mention the fact that it takes away the rights of the workers to vote to either accept or reject a contract. You know, the government's now imposing a contract. That's problematic. I don't see the government imposing a contract, uh, but I also think that, um, oh, gee, where was I going with that? Um, I think that um, that it all comes down to the way we're doing things. And I don't think uh, it's working for anybody, to tell you the truth. And I think we need to have a come-to-Jesus meeting about all this stuff because of COVID and uh, the, all, uh, the pandemic changed things in such a drastic way that uh, we have to hit this big reset button because things are not the way they used to be and uh, we have to look at ways to, to make this work for everybody concerned i don't disagree with that i i just think the the solutions are probably what we disagree on yeah and it's, um, and, it's um, yeah. and i'm i'm just kind of drawing things out logically from a to b to c and so on and this is Again, that's part of the problem I had with EFCA and, and the PRO Act is, and they do state, you know, within 120 days, if there's no contract, there's an arbitration panel that will decide to put contract and it will be enforceable for up to two years. You know, and then PRO Act is more meaty than, than the EFCA was on the subject because it gets into living wage and, and so that's, there's a whole bunch of issues with that. Cool. Uh, the pandemic again uh, raised some uh, problems because manufacturing had been allowed to move all this stuff offshore, and all of a sudden we didn't have the masks that we needed, the syringes, a lot of the medical supplies had to come from trade of all places uh, to uh, make sure that we had what we needed to combat the disease. And uh, I, I think there's something really ironic there that tells us that we need to bring some of this stuff back in, into this country. I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's how to go about it. And that's, it's always the devil of the details that, that gets you into the disagreements. The, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> so, so the vision for unions um, in the future, and I wanted to throw this out at you as we were starting to talk offline about this. One of the things you didn't really get into with, and it probably wasn't the place in your first book, was the different attempts over the years of unions to try to rebuild themselves. And this may be a, a flash in the pan, this current uprising and organizing activity. I, it may have been, it may be starting to wane uh, just based on a couple of the headlines I've seen over the last week or so. It's still very active, don't get me wrong, but like the number of Starbucks stores has dwindled from, I think it was like 75 back in March per month filings down to 12 in September. That was out of the Wall Street Journal, so take it for what it's worth. But my question, I guess, is, you know, there's been several attempts. John Sweeney, who you mentioned in the book, you know, took over at the AFL-CIO in 96, I want to say. That sounds uh, right. And, you know, his big ousting of Lane Kirkland at the time was they're going to put more recesses, uh, resources in organizing, et cetera, et cetera. That never really transpired. You know, SEIU, who's very aggressive in organizing and, and quite good at it, 
you know, he came from the SAU, Trumpka came from the mine workers, and their grand vision, so to speak, never really transpired. So 10 years later, out to the day, it's more nine years, the big schism took place where it changed to win Teamsters, uh, you know, Teamsters, SEIU, uh, seven in total. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. But then they broke away from the AFL-CIO, took 40% of the members with them. Their big thing was we're going to be this new model of unions. And then that quickly fell apart. And, but they had an idea, which I kind of hearkened back to 100 years earlier, and where I think if unions really wanted to prosper, so to speak, as opposed to the traditional model of just organizing the masses for the sake of organizing the masses, is if they were to actually become like the training ground for workers, similar to the trades, IBEW, for example. Yeah. And so there's been a little bit of talk about this more recently, but when when the schism took place in 2005, there's like literally at their announcement in St. Louis, I think it was um, Hoffa at the time, or, or it might've been Stern, who said, you know, we're gonna have a healthcare, you know, SEIU is gonna be for healthcare workers, Teamsters are gonna be for transportation, all facets of it. We're gonna train truck drivers, we're gonna train nurses, and, but it never really happened. And and then, you know, over the next four to five years, the change to wind kind of fell apart. But, and this, again, goes back to where do unions fit in in the, in the future? And I, I've always felt that they could, they have a proper role in the workplace in the future. But if they want to increase their, for lack of a better term, marketability, perhaps if they went back to the old model, and actually became the training ground for workers. Because now, you know, we were suffering with millions of students with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt where they didn't really need to go to school. You know, they could have done something more applicable to whatever their future is through trade school or whatever. You know, maybe that's that's a proper way for unions to think about going forward. And we totally agree on that issue. I think that um, if you're going to offer free tuition to people going to college, you should also do that for uh, trade schools. And uh, I, I know a woman who became a carpenter, and um, but then she got in the workforce and found out there was all sorts of sexual harassment. So um, the pioneers are going to suffer the most when you get into a, a new industry. Uh, but I, uh, I was hired as a clerk for the phone company because they didn't have a lot of men in that title at the time. And so there was a big push to have women out on uh, telephone poles working on that stuff and men working inside. So that's that's the kind of uh, paradigm I came into. And um, I, I think you're right on uh, with that point because uh, there are people that don't have any reason to be in college, and uh, but yet they need to be able to to raise a family and and uh, feed their uh, folks and, and have their piece of the American dream. And that's why I wrote this book. Another reason I wrote this book was to say that that, that uh, a myth is is exactly what it is. It's a myth. It, it no longer is uh, uh, a, reali a realistic goal for most families because of, of the way that uh, this crony capitalism has set up um, 
you know, uh, I also mentioned in the book, uh, a um, like India has a caste system because uh, you're supposed to stay in this role, uh, and, and that's where you stay for, for your your whole career. My my dad, when I was a kid, said, "Why do you read and write so much? We're poor. You got to get used to working with your hands. You need to learn how to run a tractor and and stuff like that." And luckily, I didn't listen to him. I I went on and. I found out later he was so proud of me for becoming a union president and those kinds of things and running for office because from where we come from in a small town, I, I at 17, I would have made a woman pregnant, a girl pregnant and had a bunch of screaming little brat kids and, and lived a horrible existence in this small town in Texas. But instead, I reached higher. And I can thank my grandmother for that, for showing uh, that a middle-class existence was possible. See, I don't think those doors are shut. And I, I disagree with the caste system because there is upward and downward mobility. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, it, yes, there are problems. And, and yes, we have, you know, poor, and we always have, and, and unfortunately, probably always will, just as England does and just as, you know, other countries do. Um, but the, you know, how the opportunities is how to, to, I guess, open those up to greater things. And we do have, you know, there's a lot of kids who got suckered into college or sucked into college thinking that they needed to do it when they don't. But and I'll, let me come back to this point on, you know, the role of unions, because we were talking about earlier the, the healthcare system. You know, right. why is it that, say, the NNU or what's, it was the CNA now NNU, you know, nurses unions nationwide. Why aren't they going, if we're going to use tax dollars for certain things, why aren't they establishing schools where you bring it, bring somebody in like an apprentice, you know, in the trades, bring somebody in, teach them how to become a nurse, graduate them and place them in union hospitals. You know, or, and you can do this with every profession almost. Not every, but, you know, it, and there's, and we're, and again, and it, and this is another, this is another problem that unions have, um, have kind of inherited. Uh, and I can harken back to my CWA days. You know, there's part of the problem with the industrial union model is that in representing everybody, as opposed to the craft model, you have to represent people equally and without discrimination, you know, on membership status and all that. And that can get us into right to work. But one of the problems that unions have to overcome is they protect the lazy. Now I'm, I'm doing air fingers quote on that, but I can tell you from my own experiences as steward, chief steward, et cetera, that, you know, there are grievance that grievance with a T that, you know, didn't need to be working at that company like they shouldn't have been because they deserve to get fired but we had to represent them exactly right? so you know part of the old model of the um, apprentice journeyman type union model was we're going to represent the cream of the crop and so we're going to be able to place that cream of the crop with employers and where unions and you've seen this with the uaw um, some years ago, you know, they had a bunch of union members out in the park getting stoned at, at lunchtime, you know, made, made the news up in Detroit. 
you know, so, and then of course they get their jobs back because the union has to represent them because, you know, you get a failure to represent charge if you don't. Exactly. So that, that in itself is an internal union issue that they need to kind of um, self-police, if you will. The problem isn't the union. Uh, the problem is the company does not create a paper trail of disciplinary action that allows them to get rid of that employee. When SBC came in and, and bought Pacific Bell, uh, that's the first thing they did. They, they gave us a five-year moratorium where they weren't going to uh, mess with us at all while they went over our contract with a fine-tooth comb. Like, you get rid of problem employees. You create this paper trail, and then you argue the case because uh, they established such a, a, a good paper trail. And that's, so um, that's just laziness on the part of management. Well, and I would agree with you on that. This, I've always argued that, you know, if somebody, whether you're a union or not, if a company really wants to get rid of somebody, they can do it just as easily with the union. But it's right. the, but, and again, I, then the reason I put the air fingers quotes on there is, and I hear this from workers too, you know, when I was a union member, they just represented the lazy people, you know, and I, <laughs> I had a, uh, the local vice president when I was a chief steward and that where he used to go to the bar after the, after the union meetings. And I was lamenting about a grievance or a grievance that I had to file for a grievance that lied to me. And, and again, this was pre ADA. So it's probably not lawful to say anymore, but he said, don't you get it, man? We represent the sick, lame and lazy. And I was like, wow, <laughs> coming from a VP and I was younger at the time. And I was like, huh? Yeah. And that, but that, that perception has permeated and unfortunately unions have allowed it, not all unions. So, you know, there's always exceptions, but you know, if a lot of times, if a union rep on the, on the job, you know, he's forced to, he or she is forced to represent somebody who really doesn't deserve that representation. And, you know, it's, it's part of the thing that I think unions need to overcome themselves. I don't think that we always know the whole situation, what it's like at home or, or those kinds of things. And that, that uh, may very well enter that, that grievance case. And uh, so I don't think we can be the, the final arbiter on, on whether or not they deserve to keep their job. Our job as union reps, as you know, is to advocate for those employees. And you're right, the problem one ones are the ones that uh, filed agreements and get into trouble uh, and all, all that. But uh, it's like, uh, for instance, as I got older, I worried about whether or not, uh, I did, actually didn't have to worry about this, but um, being tossed aside as an old tool that was useless now. And, no, no, uh, and that's one of the reasons why unions came in in the first place was because they were getting rid of these old people who couldn't uh, keep up the numbers, the quota anymore. So uh, they... Um, um, we went to bat for those people because contributing to to what was being done in the workplace. So I, I think that um, it's like ADA, like you brought up ADA. Uh, anyway, um, ADA tends to look at, uh, we look at people and say, that person looks able-bodied, why aren't they working? And they may have a lot of issues we know nothing about. And so for us to just assume something based on what we see with our eyes is, is not always the, the accurate case. No, and I, I, I get that. 
<clears throat> it's just uh, what I'm what I'm generally talking about is that perception. I and, agree, and it's something that I think unions um, could work on. And it, which, and this kind of gets me to the whole right to work thing. Um, you know, there's, and I, I would, my union background came out of being in a right to work state and I've, I've kind of been mm, somewhat neutral on the whole right to work topic. I get both sides of it. Um, but you know, unions could solve that very easily by merely just advocating for representing members only. Yeah, as opposed to an entire bargaining unit, you know, anybody in this bargaining unit, anybody in this bargaining unit who are members of the union. I'm not sure I understand the distinction. Well, right to work is basically. Um, oh, I understand right to work. Yeah, it's it, you have to represent as a union rep, you have to represent oh. everybody in the workplace, right? Whether they're a union member or not a union <laughs> member, as opposed to. Uh, as opposed to, you know, representing everybody where you've got to represent non-members as well, either A, negotiate contracts where it only applies to members or advocate to change the law that it's members only. You know, and that would be in the in the National Labor Relations Act where you could have an agency shop, which is something that was declared uh, illegal uh, a number of years ago, which is why we we can't do it anymore. Well, there's um, you don't you can't you, you can't force people to be a member of the a union if they want. There there was a move about ten years ago, and I I want to say there's two or three hundred um, mostly union professors arguing for a return to members only bargaining. And that's that's it, yes, it would probably need to change the statute so it's not just a overall collective bargaining unit but members only so and i'm i'm curious as to why unions don't start leaning towards that a little bit more and i know agency shop of course but you know it's maybe you don't negotiate the agency shop you negotiate members only bargaining trade unions have that we're looking for, we're, we're, we want to represent everybody. We, we like to say the point where all workers are represented by unions because they would all have advocates. But one of the things that we do by unionizing a particular industry, and maybe we got uh, three quarters of it, and there's another quarter out there that's not union, um, is that we set the standards for that industry just by existing in that industry. Well, that makes you, sense. yeah, and if you did that on the workshop floor, where you're you're negotiating contracts for members only, um, if you're not a union worker or union member, the contract doesn't apply to you. And if it's a good contract, that would create more of a attraction towards the union within within the shop floor. If you're paying the people, the few people that aren't in the union a lot more money then that's going to drive people away from the union and so i can see why unions aren't necessarily uh, in favor of that well they were they were but well i shouldn't say unions per se the the academia academians or academicians oh. were for it about 10 years ago and it just kind of fell by the wayside 
So, Dan, we've been on for about an hour, a little bit more, actually. How's your time? Um, I'm yours for the day, so. Oh, okay. I thought you had to be somewhere. But I do. Um, when do you expect your book to be completed, the new one? Well, the first book, this one took me four years. My second book, which was a novel, only two months. As I knew more, you know, I'm somewhat of a matter expert on things like that. I, I kept thinking the book needed to be thicker, so I into more areas. <laughs> so if that happens with Rebuilding Union, we're, we're both in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I'd say about a year from now. Okay. And if people want to know, uh, in touch with me, uh, I can give you all the information, like my uh, website and all of that. Yeah, I, I usually include um, links. And I'm obviously going to include the link to the first book um, links under the audio portion on the, on the podcasts. I, let me, um, let me suggest this. I would love to have you back on um, our, our sound is you've been warbly throughout this. So it's, it's kind of choppy here and there, um, but let's continue this conversation and, you know, keep having this conversation because I think they're fruitful Um I certainly have my opinions. You have yours, and they're probably divergent in a lot of areas, but similar in others. I agree. I'd love to do that. But and I, we didn't get to the um, AB five, and we're you're kind of chatting on that uh, offline a little bit. That's um, I. We need to do this again. I want to do it when we have better connection, though. Sounds good, Peter. Okay. Dan McCrory, thank you for coming on Labor Relations Radio. It's been a pleasure. And again, uh, maybe we can do this as a regular, you know, yin, yin and yang type thing. So Sounds great. All right. Thank you, sir. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Dan McCrory, author of Capitalism Killed the Middle Class. Very nice gentleman. I hope to have him on again, uh, perhaps regularly. We definitely have some divergent ideas, and it's fun to talk about them, um, even if it's just in theory. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.